Good morning. If you are new, this is the first Sunday you've been here, no, I'm not Pastor Scott. I am Pastor Ali Hassan. I'm the associate here, bivocational pastor at the church. We have been in a series, a series in the book of Jonah, an Old Testament book that's four chapters long and It's a series that's, it's a narrative, it's a story. And regardless of what you might have heard about the book of Jonah, I believe that there are some powerful, very powerful truths that have been coming out of the story. In fact, for me, there are some things that have opened my eyes to my own walk and my own relationship with God. It's interesting how God does that. When you're preparing messages and putting stuff together, all of a sudden you kind of say, oh, this will be good. This will be good. They need to hear this. They need to be, oh, yeah, yeah this will be, oh, this will be great stuff. And then God says, this is for you. And so it's been that kind of relationship as I've tried to put together this series in the book of Jonah. This is chapter 4. And it's uh, titled, The God Who is Compassionate and Gracious. Let's pray. Indeed, God, this is, this is the final piece in this story, this narrative of the prophet Jonah. And God, I pray that we will be able to pull it all together now, that it might make sense, that we might understand what does it mean for us today in our individual places, in our own walk. Thank you, God, for all that you have done, all that you're doing, what you're yet willing to do as you speak to us through your word. Bless now your word. That the words of this preacher's mouth and the meditation of this preacher's heart would be totally acceptable to you, God. It is in the precious and magnificent, the exalted name of Jesus Christ that we pray these things. Amen. You and I exist. We reside at the corner of mercy and grace. It's an interesting place to exist because under that corner, we are, we, we, we're under this umbrella of God's love. And so mercy and grace with God's love, this is where you and I reside. Every single day that you get up, every single day that you go to a job, every single day that you do whatever you do every day, God is operating with you in that space of mercy and grace. The challenge for us, the challenge for me, is to be, keep be, re, being reminded of it every day that it's not about us. That it's simply God's grace and mercy that allows us to be able to do whatever we do in our individual worlds. We've been in this chapter, this story about Jonah and as we read this last chapter of Jonah, I, 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 want, I want you to keep thinking in mind. I want you to put it all together. 
And that's what I'm going to attempt to do. I'm going to attempt to put the story all together for us. And then in this story, I'm going to show you what what the issue here in chapter 4. And then I'm going to say, okay, now how do we put this all together? What does it mean for us now, right now in 2014, right this minute? What does it mean for us? Because if we don't have that, it's just a story about a whale and a guy that got swallowed. And it's a nice story to tell kids, but if it has no meaning beyond that for you, then I've not done my job. Hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 4. Recall that Jonah had gone on his second commission, the first time he ran from God, and then God got his attention in Whale University. He got his, he matriculated, and he was, he finally got it right. God said, now go and preach the same thing I told you to preach the first time. And he goes and he preaches. And an interesting thing happens. These evil and wicked people that God had him go to, they repented. In fact, even the animals were fasting. Everybody was fasting. The king said, hey, we got to repent. Everybody repented, and God relented. God changed his mind. Not his character because he is immutable. He is the changeless one. So his character didn't change as sovereign God, but he changed because he is sovereign God, because he demonstrated mercy for these people, the Ninevites. Chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah was mad. Some versions say, yeah, he was very, 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 very mad. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? In other words, he's using this as an excuse for why he ran. This is why I took off the first time and didn't hear you, because I knew you were going to do this. That is what, why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's got that right in terms of God's character. That's exactly who God is. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Take my life. I don't want to live now. What's going on with this prophet of God? He's a prophet of God. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out from the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. In other words, he wanted to see how God was going to pull this off. And he, he was right. God, God extended mercy. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the, his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. First he was exceedingly mad. Now he's exceedingly glad. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Oh, kill me. Take my life. I'm done. And he said, 
It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor you make, did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. This is key, God's key answer right here, verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? It is key for me. This chapter, chapter 4, pulls it all together in terms of what this is about. Because if, 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 if we got this right, the whole book of Jonah is speaking about something very, very, very powerful about God. In reality, the story I said to you before, it's not so much about Jonah and the whale. It's about God. So what does it say about God? God used Jonah as a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection for the dead. That's, that's, that's key because it's the only piece that we have in the scriptures where Jesus Christ specifically calls out an Old Testament prophet. And for that reason, we know that this story is true. He specifically says, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, the Son of Man will be. In other words, he's painting a picture of, of what was going to happen to him. That just like Jonah would, Jonah would die, Jonah would come back, in a sense be resurrected to life because of God, the same thing will happen to Jesus Christ, that he will give his life and he will be resurrected back again. God's response to the repentant heart of non-believers and desires their salvation. That's what God is about in Jonah. God is sovereign and he will accomplish his divine plan using whatever and whomever he chooses. Everywhere throughout the book of Jonah, God is demonstrating his sovereignty and his power. He appointed the wind. He appointed the fish. He appointed plant. He appointed the worm. He's doing everything where he is causing things to happen to carry out his plan. And God has compassion on all people. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later because that's going to be a key piece. And I don't want you to miss it. God has compassion on all people. You and I do not have compassion on all people. God has compassion on all people. And this is where we live sometimes because we forget that God is out trying to fulfill his redemptive plan. And his redemptive plan involves all people. Not just black people, not just Asian people, not just Indian people, not just Caucasian or white folks. It, all folks, God is looking to do what? Draw people in into his redemptive plan because that's what God is about. And that's when, in essence, this, this story of Jonah is really about how God kind of, pre, kind of foreshadows how he wants to operate in the new world. God, not man, is in control of the destiny of nations. Now, this is a strange application, because when you look at that piece where God says, and should not I pity, you, you get the impression that God is speaking to us. 
We're prompted to do what God is leading Jonah to do. Watch this. To compare the compassion and gracious heart of God with his own. In other words, what God is saying is, look at Jonah. Look at his heart. And I want you to take a look at your heart. Because some of the things that's going on with Jonah, it's the very same thing that we struggle with and we deal with in the 21st century. Well, I've never ran from God. Well, maybe not Ashley. Maybe you didn't board a ship headed for Tarshish, but you and I have run from God in other ways. You, have, I have, you and I have failed to be obedient in many ways. We've been stubborn where we knew that God was speaking and God was telling us, move in this direction, go right or go left. And we said, nope, 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 I'm going the other way. So, so it's going to speak to us in those areas. If there was a takeaway from this Jonah narrative, especially chapter 4 here, and this is where I want to I just look at just the, the whole chapter 4 right now and just kind of hit on the takeaway for this. To what degree do we live by an us and them mindset? You see, the real struggle here with Jonah is that he was so ethnocentric. He was so, remember when he was on the ship, the boat with the sailors, the, the heathen sailors, and they said, who are you? Where, where do you come from? And he said, what? I am a Hebrew. He's very proud to be who he is. Nothing wrong with that. But it becomes a little bit of a challenge when it becomes the thing that you kind of wear as your badge and God is minimized in that equation. I'm black and I'm proud. Back in the 60s, I remember that when I was growing up. Nothing wrong with that. But it becomes an issue when it becomes that thing that minimizes God and it kind of lifts up the man or the woman. See, what God is wanting to do is he wants all of our heart. He doesn't want anything whatsoever, whether it's your ethnic background, your nationality, your whatever. He doesn't want anything to get in the place of his divine redemptive plan. God is trying to draw people in, and that means he's drawing people from all over the place. Because that's how he operates. Because after all, that's what his son did. Died for all. So in what ways might this attitude hinder God's work in our community, in our world? I'll let you answer that. Jonah's bitterness skewed his perspective of God. Have we allowed bitterness? He was mad at God. I knew you were, were going to do this because you're gracious, you're long-suffering, you're staff. You, he had it all right, the theology. Why wouldn't he be obedient and say, yes, that's exactly who God is. And that's exactly who I'm going to be as God's servant, as God's prophet. And we allow bitterness to cause us to forget our God is compassionate. And we should reflect his character in Christ. You see, our God is compassionate. Our God is, is, is steadfast. Everything in the scriptures from the beginning to the end talks somewhere about God loving us so much. Mercy. Interesting to me, 
in the Old Testament. I think it's in the 34th chapter of Exodus. But God introduces himself to Moses. Remember? And Moses is going in this dialogue with God. And God is going, Moses is going, well, uh, uh, show me. Sh- show me your glory. And God says, well, you know, I, I, I have favor on you. This is my paraphrase. I have favor on you, but you, you can't look on God. No man can look on God and live. But what I'll do is I'll, I'll put you in this little, this, little, this little cleft in the rock here, and, and, and I'll cover you, and, and as I walk by, I'll let you see my backside. That's all I'm going to show you. Because I am God who is merciful. Why does he introduce himself as the merciful one? I am the Lord. I am the merciful one. His first speaking to Moses, his prophet, he says, I am merciful. Because I believe that that's an incredible characteristic of God that he's using in his redemptive plan. That he is the merciful God. He is the compassionate God. And he wants us to be likewise. We who name the name of Jesus Christ. It, 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 it's, to me it's egregious if we find ourselves in a situation where we're just the opposite of that. Where we're so hardened and so bitter that we cannot love folk that are different from us. That we have bitterness in our heart when it comes to dealing with folk that don't look like us. That don't smell like us. That don't feel like us. There's something wrong with that picture if you're calling yourself a Christian. Because that, that wasn't the way, that's not the way Jesus operated. His issue, if he had an issue, was that he was constantly stepping across, knocking down the walls, knocking down anything that would separate people. So how does the whole story of Jonah connect with my story and life right now. When I look at this chapter 1 to chapter 4, the entire story, I believe that we have been given a preview of what that grand redemptive story is really about. Recall, I say it to you, that you buy into one of two stories. Either you buy into a humanistic story that places man at the center or you buy into a a, a God-centered story where God is at the center. One of those stories you got to buy into. You don't get a chance to straddle. You got to be in one of those camps. And I believe that we are in the camp that says God is at the center. And if God is at the center, Jesus Christ, if he's at the center, then that's the grand story. That's the grand narrative that I talked about. The world rejects that story. The world runs away from that story. Why? Because it rejects the grand narrative, what we call the meta-narrative. It, it doesn't want to hear that story. Because what the world says is there are multiple stories out there. There's all kinds of stories out there. There's your story. There's your story. There's your story. And all of our stories have validity. What's right for you may not be right for me. We, we have this relativistic kind of moralism where it's, it's right if it feels right. And it may feel right on Tuesday, but on Wednesday it may not feel right. On Friday it may be okay. On Saturday that may not be okay. It's all based on what man thinks and what he feels. And yet our story, the grand narrative, the grand story, the 
story that Jonah talks about this through this whole chapter 1 through 4 is a story that says God is at the center. And God is working a plan. And God wants us to get on board with his plan. I believe that it summarizes the gospel. You don't have this chart up there, but 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 is a summary of the gospel message. If you didn't know that, write yourself a note to yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4 is a summary of the gospel message. So if someone asks you, but what is the gospel? The easy answer would be, what? It's the good news. Right? But if you want to get a little bit more theological, you can zero in on, on, on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4. I would ask someone to read it, but uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody, so I'll, I'll, re- I'll read it myself. It's, 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 it's interesting to me because most of the time, most churches miss this. They don't talk enough about this. Paul is writing, verse, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. Here's the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel message. That's it. Putting in in, in a paraphrase, the man Jesus is also God or Christ and died on a cross in our place, paying the penalty for our sins. Three days later, he rose to conquer sin and death And give the gift of salvation to all who believe in him alone for eternal life. That's the gospel message. So, if we take chapters 1 through chapter 4 of Jonah, and we were to take that that, that narrative, that story, and kind of like squeeze it into some sort of, okay, how do we package this so that we can kind of remember it? Here's what I've got. Three things. If it's the Lord, you can answer it. If it's not the Lord, ignore it. That gets corny after a while if you say it more. A story presentation of the gospel. That's what we've got, a story presentation of the gospel in the book of Jonah. It is the gospel in in a story form. And it's kind of weird because it's unique. You would miss this if you didn't pick up these pieces. It reveals the far-reaching effect of the gospel in three key ways. The gospel and our sin, the gospel and, our, and God's grace, the gospel and God's mission. When I talk about the gospel and our sin, all throughout the story of Jonah, from chapter 1 through chapter 4, you find what? You find Jonah, the sailors, and the Ninevites are all messed up. Turn to someone sitting to you and say, they were all messed up. <laughs> Jonah was prideful, rebellious, self-righteous. The sailors were, uh, worshipped false gods. The Ninevites were exceedingly wicked. 
They were all messed up. One of the realities, and I mentioned this to you before, one of the realities of, of making this, this transition to understanding that the, the, the redemptive story, the grand story that we believe in, one of the realities in that story is the fact that our sin is sin. It is real. In fact, the gravity and universality of sin spoken of in Romans 3, chapter, chapter 3, 9 through 20, the gravity of sin in our lives is so powerful, it's affected us at the very DNA level. In other words, we come into this world affected because of sin. I will say to you that if you don't buy that piece, just that little piece there, if you don't buy the piece, the fact that, that, that we are sinners needing a Savior, if you cannot get to that place, I tell you right now, it's going to be a long, long uphill battle. Because that's the first piece that you have to recognize. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That's the first piece. Jonah recalled. Cries out to God in chapter 2. He prays. He later flip-flops because that's where he's at. But he, he cries out in all sincerity. The, uh, the sailors on the boat, they cry out to God. God saves them. God saved Jonah. The gravity and university of sin is very key. In fact, David in Psalm 51 makes it clear when he talks about in sin was I conceived even from the very beginning. He recognizes that from the very beginning at birth, there's something amiss. There's something wrong. Well, why is that the case, Pastor Ali? Because our parents, Adam and Eve, in the Bible, in Genesis, we have become infected because of their sin nature. And so we carry the same sin nature. So we come into this world affected. It's amazing how when my grands, who happen to be visiting now for a few days, it's amazing. I remember when they were like two and three years old, they, they had this propensity that was just interesting how they could start to do little things like lie. It's like, you're only like two years old. What do you know about lying? How did they figure it out? Well, they could manipulate and do little things. And, and, and Karen and I were talking. And said, you know, she's kind of manipulating. I said, yeah, I noticed that. So she couldn't get her way with you. And so she came over here to me. And I noticed how she's, how did they, how did they figure that out? We didn't sit down and say, now here's how manipulation works. You got to do this. No, we didn't do it. <laughs> Nobody did that to the best of our knowledge. But guess what? They figured out how to do it. And they, why? Because my grands aren't unique. They're like your grands, like anybody, your kids, anybody else's grands and kids. They come into the world already tainted. Now they're covered by a special grace. We know that. But they come into this world tainted. If you wanted to be theologically correct, you would say it's the, it's the whole doctrine of total depravity. We are totally depraved. And you have to buy that. Total depravity means that our rebellion against God is total. Everything we do is in this rebellion is sin. Our inability to submit to God or reform ourselves is total. And we are therefore totally deserving of eternal punishment. That's John Piper. We're totally messed up because we come into this world already biased in a negative way. We're already, we're, we're, we're already kind of given over to this nature that is not right. 
Now, that's the bad news. Pastor Ali, please tell us the good news. This is sounding really bad. But the good news is what? That there is Jesus Christ and there is his love. You see, that's what was going on in Jonah, in, 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 in saving Jonah. And giving him a second chance and saving the saver, savers. Because what God was doing is he was prefiguring, he was kind of giving, uh, this was a shadow of what would happen later on. That God would say, I, I, need to, I need to go after folk that are running from me. I need to pursue. See, God always is the pursuer. We don't pursue God. God pursues us. We pursue self. God pursues us because he loves us. The gospel and God's grace. The entire story narrative in Jonah is about God pursuing depraved, fallen runaways. His pursuit of the Ninevites is proof of his grace. God knew that they were wicked people because it said in the text that the reason you're going to tell those folks that, that, that uh, preach to them is because their evilness, their wickedness has come before me. In other words, God was saying, yeah, I know, I see, I am God, I see how wicked they are, and yet I want you to go save them. But, 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 but I'm a Hebrew, but, but I, I want to represent Israel, I want to protect my own people, I want to cover my own stuff. And, and God is saying, no, I want you to go after these wicked people. Why does God do that? Because he's not like man. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than our thoughts and ways. And so if you try to use logic with God, it just doesn't work. Try it. I dare you. Somebody slaps you on this side of the face. I dare you. Okay, slap me over here. Most of us don't respond like that. Right? It, it, the logic just doesn't work most of the time. You can't apply the logic. The first, the last shall be first. What is that about? I want to go. I want to be first. I'm standing in getting some coffee the other day, and that's like, like I see a bunch of people, so I go right up. I'm thinking they're standing over there wasting time. I'm going to stand right here in the front so I can be next. And then I find out, oh, the line starts back there? Oh, it's five, six people in front of me. Why? Because I want to be first. To think the other way in, in the sense that the Bible teaches is I'm all, to serve. I, it, it's counterintuitive for us. That's why being submitted to the will of God in spirit is so key for us. Because it keeps us and protects us from ourselves. Proof of God's grace is demonstrated at the cross of Christ. That's God's grace personified for us. Are we proclaiming this grace in our churches? In our day-to-day dealings with others? Do people sense that God's grace is coming from you as you deal with them in your job, in your profession, in school, in whatever your business? Do people sense God's grace as you interact with them? Or do they sense some legalistic, some sort of pharisaic, some sort of... If it's not about Christ, what is it about? We should be people on the front line doing what? Demonstrating his grace. And that's what God is looking for. People that are willing to do that. To put themselves last. To go to the back of the line. 
say, okay, you're first. No, you're first. Husband and wives, it's the epitome of a relationship where you say, no, you first. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. Because you want to serve each other. I didn't figure that out until about 10, 15 years into my marriage that, oh, yeah, oh, that's right. She's first. I'd get in the car and, why is she standing outside the car? Oh, that's right. You want me to open the car? Oh, okay. Come around, open the car door. Oh, okay. I had to be re-educated on that thing. And, and my lovely wife, she goes, he goes, yeah, just like you did when we were dating. I said, oh, bust it. If you did it when you were dating, why wouldn't, this is extra stuff, why wouldn't you do it when you're now married? Because you got her now? Or got him? Come on now. That's a whole other message. We can talk about that one in a while. In our day-to-day dealings with others. Let me step into a little hot place for a minute here. All those children, 50, 60,000, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, that are coming across the border. I wonder how many Christian folks are demonstrating grace. Or are some folks sitting back saying, no, they, they need to go back because they're burdening our system. Maybe there's some of those folks sitting here right now, maybe you've thought that. I did at first, and then God got my attention and said, no, that's not grace. That's not compassion. That's not me. That's you and your selfishness. Yeah, but they don't, but, 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 but I love them, and they belong to me. They don't belong to you. How dare you represent me and say that they don't belong. They belong because they belong to me. And you are representing me. And therefore, you need to say, yes, they belong. How does that work itself out logistically? I don't know. But what if our churches were simply saying, you know what? We're going to step to the front of the line and say, you know what? We're we're going to own some stuff here. What if our churches were that bold to represent Christ? Are we doing anything really strange or different than what Christ did? Suffer not the little ones to come unto me. What if churches got involved and said, we're going to look at this as an opportunity to plant seeds in these little ones so that when they grow up 15, 20 years from now, they will be people, not just immigrants, but they will be servants of the Most High God in this country. It's a radical way to think about it, but it's not politically correct, right? You can say amen. And the last one was the gospel as God's mission. Chapters 1 through chapter 4 is about the mission of God. God's mission. What is God doing? It's giving us just a snapshot, just a picture of what we already know in the New Testament. Right? He's given us a picture of it. The whole story of, of, of Jonah running from him. And it's funny, I, I could just imagine when I was going researching this thing and studying and praying about this thing, I, just, I, I kept getting stuck on the part where Jonah running from the presence of God. It's just so ludicrous. It's so ridiculous. How do you run from the presence of an omniscient God? How do you do that? Somebody help me see. How do you run from the presence of God? God is all-knowing. He's all-seeing. How do you run from the presence of God? 
some of us, maybe not here, some folks still do that. They, can get, they think they can get away with anything in their Christian walk and figure God doesn't know because God is sleeping or God is busy or something trying to do some other things and so God doesn't know. Don't fool yourself. You can't run from the presence of God. On God's mission, God is on a mission to transform the present world, all kinds of people, to be people like him. Now, if you don't believe that, I, I want you to look at one scripture. If you, if, 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 th- this is probably a key piece for me because when I look at this, I keep coming back to this over and over. It's in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. This is, th- this is the way you look at Revelation. We're going to preach on this one day, uh, Pastor Scott. Now, you, you, you look at Revelation as this is the way it is. And, and when, when all is said and done and the curtain is, comes to close, this is, this, is, this is the end of the story, so to speak. So we have the advantage of knowing the end of the story. Chapter 5, verse 9, Revelation. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Recall, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but there was nobody that was worthy to take the scroll to open the seal and all that stuff except Jesus Christ. And you were slain, and by your blood, talking about Christ, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. We already know the end of the story. What God is doing is he's pulling every tribe, every tongue, every nation together because that's what God is about doing because that's part of his redemptive story, his plan. He is fulfilling that and he will use you, he will use me, he will use whomever he wants to use because God is God and he's sovereign and that's what he's about. And if you don't like the story, if you don't like the way God's plan is working, you can run. But you can't hide. You can run, but you can't hide. God is working something way, way, way bigger than you. He's compassionate. Psalm 78, 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh. A wind that passes and comes again. And then recall when Jesus met the crowds. In Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Talking about God's compassion. And you remember the story about the prodigal. He went off to do his own thing and at one point he realized the situation and he said, you know, I'm coming back to my father's house. And I'll just be a servant there. I'll just be one of the slaves. If I can get in as a slave status, that, that'll work for me. And he arose and came to his father, Luke fifteen twenty. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What God is doing is God is saying, we the people of God need to figure out what it means to be compassionate because our Heavenly Father is compassionate and that's what the book of Jonah is about. God working his plan to involve all kinds of folks to redeem folks that be folks that are like Christ. And we're getting a picture of that. We get a very clear picture in the Old Testament. Jonah dies. He's resurrected. But he's got issues. The Son of Man dies. 
he has no issues because he's perfect man, perfect God, sinless. And he gave his life for us. And that's the picture that God has given us in the book of Jonah. If you're still with me, say amen. God bless you. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful story. I pray, Father, that we have done justice to it, that it will be a blessing, and it has been a blessing. Now, God, I pray that you would do your work on hearts as only you can do, not me, but you. And I trust, O oh God, that we will leave this place changed in terms of understanding what it means to serve a compassionate and merciful God. In the precious and matchless name of Jesus Christ, amen.